Well, you will notice that there are thankfully no fires behind me, and we have no intention of starting any any conflagrations, anything like that. Um, I, I I'm gonna have to ask people um, exactly uh, how they did that because you know you could see smoke, you could see wind. Uh, I just I just want to know how close Doug came to the conflagration. <laughs> Did you see it? Oh yeah, it's um, uh, yeah here. You, you see it now? Yeah, yeah. I I it's no quarter November um, up in Idaho and. Um, uh, Doug did mention in the uh, in the opening that he's 69 years old. He'll be 70 next year. So maybe that's his way of saying they're gonna they're gonna hold off on really big exploding things and stuff for his 70th uh, next year. I, I I don't know, uh, but uh, we're not we're not doing any. We don't really have anybody to to do special effects. Uh, we have no fire. We have no special effects. Uh, we don't even, we don't even do sound effects around here. What? Uh oh. Get functioning lava lamp. We have the lava lamp. There is a lava lamp. Yes, yeah. it's um, it's it's not. We didn't get started early enough for it to be lava ing yet. Um, but in fact, during the winter, I'm not sure it ever really gets lava ing very much. Because it has to be warmer. So anyway, welcome to the dividing line. We've got lava. <laughs> We've got lava. Yeah, it's actually just wax, but uh, we can call it lava if we want to. Anyway, uh, here we are. And uh, just a quick reminder: uh, we are we are Lord willing. You know, I I was t- talking to one of the pastors, one of the elders, one of the guys. Sorry. I'm not sure what position he holds in the church, but he's one of my students at GBTS. I was talking to him today about uh, my stop at their church on the way back from St. Charles. And I said, just make sure to have about 20 gallons of diesel. <laughs> That's maybe one of the main things we need. Actually, my, my truck carries 36. And I already bought a five-gallon can, by the way. I haven't showed that to you yet, but uh, that'll that puts me up to forty-one. Uh, and uh, what? Yellow, yellow, yellow diesel can. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so there, those are going to be the real basic needs um, uh, as we look at the insanity going on in our in our nation. Just make sure you got enough enough fuel to get back. Uh, that'll that'll be the big thing. So. Uh, looking forward to being in uh, Lubbock and Emory, Texas, Jonesboro, Arkansas. Those are on the way back. So we go out, St. Charles, do our regular first weekend of December at um, St. Charles like we have for 22 years now. We we were late last year uh, for physical reasons. It was in just uh, February of this year, actually. Um and I've been there since then. I did a, an evening uh, on one of the last trips as well. Um, but um, those folks just put up with me whenever I show up. And I, I don't know how I took them, took them over like that, but they, they put up with me. So it's great. So uh, looking forward to this next trip. And uh, once again, sincere thanks to everyone um, 
who supports us in doing this and getting out there into those churches and um, addressing the topics we're addressing. Lots of things to get to today. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time here, uh, but I, I do think it is important to, you, you know, we we have spent, I, I wonder if anyone has gone back and uh, added up the number of hours we've spent responding to, talking about, discussing the claims of Leighton Flowers and the provisionists. You'll notice we haven't done that a whole lot recently because, to be honest with you, there's only so much to be said. There's only so many ways to demonstrate that provisionism is a man-centered, incoherent, unbiblical um, mess of gobbledygook. Um, And we've done that over and over again. We've done it in debate. And uh, whenever you address especially Leighton Flowers, you can expect three, four, five, six, seven, eight hours uh, of rambling, normally non sequiturs in response that, just to be honest with you, at my age, I'm not interested in wasting the time uh, listening to all that stuff anymore. Um, but once in a while, it, a uh, a video popped up with Frank Turek. And I, I, I just don't understand Frank. You know, we, we met one time when I was at SES, uh, back when they had on-campus students and stuff like that, you know, uh, Michael Brown and I had the had the debate, and we uh, it, it was it was a good time. And he seems like a really nice guy. And we talked a little about sola scriptura. We talked a little bit about reformed theology, I suppose, in passing. But ever since then, whenever I have responded to anything that Frank Turk has said. Um, for example, I think one of the most useful clips out there is the comparison of Frank Turek's response to David Silverman and my response to David Silverman. We both debated David Silverman, and he asked us the exact same question, and we responded to that question in completely different ways. And um, I think Silverman was had no idea what to do with my response. Uh, not that it wasn't clear, it was, and he did not respond to it. But he was used to dealing with the Arminian, non-reformed, non-presuppositional, evidentialist argumentation that Dr. Turk presented. And in comments on Roman Catholicism and a number of other issues, we've we've responded, we've indicated our, our interest in discussing the issue, but silence, crickets. Uh, from from Dr. Dr. Turk. So I'm, I'm not expecting this to go anywhere, uh, but it's useful. And what I don't understand about it is what is said by Dr. Turk here is I, I would expect something like this from Norm Geisler because Norm Geisler stopped thinking about Reformed theology decades and decades and decades before he died. And so he... Just wouldn't listen. I, I've I sat there and tried, um, and and it just the veil comes down and just they're just not listening. There's there's nothing wasn't anything going on there. Uh so when you when you hear just horrible misrepresentations of what it is we believe and and why we believe it, you just have to go. You have to go. Why? 
what is the motivation? And in many instances, it, it just simply seems to me that the people on the other side, they don't want to listen. The funny thing is, that's what he's saying about us. Except the vast majority of Reformed people have come out of. Yeah, sure, they're, they're Reformed people that were raised within the Reformed tradition, sure. But the vast majority of people came out of a synergistic perspective and abandoned that, and hence know very well what the objections to Reformed theology are. And those of us who have written on it, um, Potter's Freedom gives clear evidence of listening very carefully to Norm Geisler's objections, and I think they would be very similar to Frank Turek's. And so it's... um. It's fascinating, and hopefully it'll be useful. It's a short clip. Um, what? Did I pipe the audio over? Well, I don't know. Um, I'm trying. Is that Office TV? That one? All right. Well, we'll see if that works. <laughs> so here is uh, Leighton Flowers. Who again talks about the time when he was a Calvinist? He wasn't. I, I've I've talked to too many people who knew him at that time. He's never been able to produce any meaningful documentation that he ever understood the Reformed worldview and functioned from it and presented it. He may have thought himself five point Calvinist, but he doesn't have a clue what that means. Never was. Just all there is to it. Um, but he still does the I'm the former Calvinist stuff, and it's sort of sort of silly. But uh, anyway, let's let's listen to this and respond to Leighton Flowers and uh, Frank Turek. Have the 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 motivation for evangelism like I should, right? If that's the case, it might just be easier to say, "I can explain this. God just hasn't selected them." If you have two viable options in front of you, two viable interpretations in front of you. One, one of which has actually been more popular throughout Christian history among scholars. Now, now think about this. I'm having to, it's so loud. I'm having to hold the earpiece like three inches from my ear. Um, Leighton wants to do the, there are lots of ways of interpreting scripture, you see. And uh, there's, there's no one, one consistent way. And so now he's, so now you have, Scripture is unclear, and then we can look at church history. Well, you know, uh, remember, Leighton Flowers is a big fan of the Calvinists came from the Manichaean foolishness that we've debunked for quite some time now. Um, and so it, it, there, there's, there's no way to engage. We've, when, whenever we've engaged Leighton on church history stuff, it's been embarrassing for Leighton. He doesn't know church history and he's made incredible mistakes regarding church history. But there is no question that depending on how you define church history in the broad spectrum of things, there is no question the fact that man-centered religion is far more popular amongst men than a theological understanding of God's sovereignty and man's inability outside of the sovereign grace of God. No argument about that at all, but that's an argument for our side. <laughs> okay, that's 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 an argument for our side. Um, it is it is there is no question that God's truth 
regarding his sovereignty over his people has to be reiterated over and over again because the tendency of man is to always insert himself into the glory of God. And so we have to hammer away on, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast, because we have the tendency of boasting. That's our argument, and he doesn't even seem to realize that. Like I said, if he had ever actually been reformed, he would understand that. Uh, again, I have no reason to believe whatsoever uh, that he ever that he ever was. But there you go. Uh, namely, the the view that we hold to the more uh, free will perspective, if you will, uh, has always been more popular throughout church history than the the more predestinarian uh, or the deterministic mm-hmm. kind of interpretations. If you have both of those in front of you, and you're and you're actually studying the best of both scholars from both sides. Why would you choose the one mm-hmm. that seems to make God the author of sin, that seems to impugn his character, that seems to possibly undermine other very strong texts that indicate God's frustration for when we don't choose to follow him? And So once again, you, you, you have this, there isn't, um, Leighton knows he cannot refute Ephesians 1. He's tried and has just face-planting failed at, 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 at the process. And you saw what happened with Romans 9 <laughs> um, and Romans 8 and, and all the. So what you have to do is you have to go, well, there are equally valid interpretations, you see. And not equally. Now, now, now he'll point to this person's interpretation over there and this person's interpretation over there, but then they'll disagree with, with each other on all sorts of things. There is one consistent interpretation on these issues on the other side that is consistent with the nature of God. Now remember, Leighton was one who just recently was saying, yeah, the, the Southern Baptists should never have gotten rid of the open theist. You know, it's, it's a perfectly valid philosophical speculation and discussion and blah, blah, blah. And we've been saying forever and a day, um, you know, it just, it's just so obvious where he is and, and where he's going to end up. There's just, it, it, it's so plain to anybody watching it. Um, but then you'll, then you get these arguments. Well, it impugns his, 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 his character. Uh, I think creating a universe, uh, filled with purposeless evil is the greatest impugning of God's character ever. And as soon as you throw back at that, well, 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 you know, we're not, and you can't get them, you can't get them to commit. He won't, uh, he, he, he's so wishy washy on his actual doctrine of God, that it's, well, you know, that's a good thought over there. And all he can say is, but we what we can't say is what the Calvinist says. He can't tell you positively what actually to believe. But what we can't say is, is that. We just, we just have to be, you know, we, we have to redefine grace and make grace dependent upon man's responses and, and all the rest of the stuff that we've spent years documenting. We're not going to go back over it again. But um, this is setting up a real straw man situation. And Dr. Turek's response should be, well, you know, this, I'm not really sure that's an accurate way of putting things. But when you're on somebody else's show, frequently you don't get that. And the, the wrath of God and the punishment of God for doing things that he supposedly determined for you to do that you couldn't help. I don't it, know why it seems- they, 
Yeah. And I was, was going to say, I don't know why they choose it late. And I can speculate. It might be because it's easier. <clears throat> right. And it might easier in the sense that, well, look, these people are just on their way to hell. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, I, I'll throw a Bible verse at them, see if, you know, see if if maybe they'll respond. I don't know if they're elect or not. But, gee, if they don't respond, I guess they're just not elect. So uh, I, I don't really have the 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 motivation for evangelism like I should. Right. If that's the case, it might just be easier to say, I can explain this. God just hasn't selected them. But and, and it also makes me feel better. Well, he selected me. Right. He's selected me and I don't really have any free choice in it. But, gee, I'm pretty special now. Now, this kind of straw man is just reprehensible, Dr. Turk. You just. um, I don't know who you're trying to convince here. You're, you're certainly not reaching anyone who's reformed because we know that this thing is getting close to the same conflagration that that we saw behind Doug Wilson in today's video. Um, you you get this award today, Dr. Turk. You are strawmanning badly, and you're demonstrating a fundamental level of ignorance. Um, you know, it, it's uh, Dr. Turk. We start our services at Apologia by reading from a a book that clearly you've never seen and never read, uh, titled "The Valley of Vision." And it's a collection of Puritan prayers. Uh, The nine-year-old kids in my church would look at what you just said and go, that man doesn't understand, Mommy. Because they would know. They've heard enough Puritan prayers to know that that's not what what Reformed people believe for a second. Oh, it's easier. Really? Really? That's why every day of the week... There are teams from Apologia Church out at at strip clubs and out in Mill Valley and at abortion mills and and that's why we're pl- planning a church in Salt Lake City and that's that's why because it's easier. What? And the whole idea. Well, they chose me. That makes me special. It's just, again. Anyone who's done any meaningful reading at all, any serious scholarly reading or any just serious reading at all, knows that that is a horrific misrepresentation. It's it's interesting when we we had the uh, the that opening reading from the Valley of Vision this Sunday. Uh, Doctor Joe Boot mentioned to me that he now lives uh, in a in a place in England where he can walk across the street, go to church, and it was the former rector of that church, a conservative Anglican church, that put the Valley of Vision together. He's the one that collected all those prayers. And if you just take the time, you would you would see that those prayers will over and over and over and over again refute what you just said. Um, and in fact, if you understood Reformed theology at all, you would understand unconditional election. It's not because I'm special. It's because I'm not special. I didn't fulfill any conditions. There wasn't anything in me that drew God's election. So you, you need to understand, Dr. Turk, what your, your flippant, shallow misrepresentations are saying to us, this is not a man who understands what he's talking about. 
and I don't understand why it is. But given the things you've said, it's interesting this is the day after Reformation Day. Given the things you've said about Roman Catholicism, you don't understand what the Reformation was about. You don't understand what Luther and Erasmus were, were dealing with. You understand why Luther said that Erasmus had touched upon the heart of the matter, the hinge upon which it all turns. And what was it? The freedom and bondage of the will. The exact thing you all are talking about. And you all are on Erasmus's side. You're on the Roman side against the Reformation. I hope you weren't dressing up as Martin Luther or anything uh, yesterday. Uh, because you all are on the other side of the chasm. You are opposed to the Reformation. You're not a part of the Reformation. I know Leighton's tried to get around that, again, another face-plantingly bad attempt. Uh, because on the first written debate of the Reformation, this entire video is on the side of Erasmus against Luther. That's, that's, that's just a fact. So I don't know who you're trying to convince here. Maybe you're, you're just trying to you know, cheer up the troops. They're already convinced that we, we need to avoid talking to those Calvinists or listening to what those Calvinists are saying, whatever. But for those of us who are listening to this, this is just another example of, well, you know, here you go with more evangelicals that just have no earthly idea what it is we're saying. They're, they're not listening. Um, and and that's that's a shame. Okay. I'm speculating. I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't yeah. know what's in their head. Maybe- yeah, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't know what's in their head. Um, that's the problem. You could know if you wanted to. Let, let me point something out. Uh, we tend to write books. <laughs> um, there are lots of memes out there about, you know, if you can't afford seminary, get into an argument with a Calvinist and he'll lecture you forever for free. Um, that kind of thing. It, and it's true. So again, there's no reason for you to be sitting there going, well, I'm just speculating. I don't know. When, the documentation demonstrates your speculation is not only based on ignorance, but it, it's it's based upon a rejection of the easily available, obvious information that if you just you know take the time to look at it, you, you might you might not say this kind of stuff. Maybe it might it 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 might be that they've never heard the other side. That could be the case. Maybe. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I mean. I honestly can't think. I, I, I'm I'm trying here. I I cannot think of any reformed person that is in such a cave that they have not heard. I mean, use using the same example. Um, one of the things that I do when I'm in town at Apologia, I, I did uh, Sunday is we have a catechism question in the bulletin. I think we're on question 35 on effectual calling right now. And man, it's a rich, 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 rich question. Uh, and it, the answer is really, really deep on monergism and the role of the Spirit. And, and so what I do is I go through pretty much phrase by phrase with the response and then the verse that we memorize and make sure that as we're memorizing this, we're not just memorizing things by rote, but we understand its relevance. And... Over the years, I've been been there, uh, heading for five years now. Um, I have repeatedly explained to people why it is that people struggle with the things that we're saying. What are the views of those people out there? 
and I don't have to misrepresent them. I, there, there's no reason to. The more clearly and fully and accurately you represent the other side, the more devastating your critique and answer can be, and the more useful to the people. So as I'm going through effectual calling, I'm, I'm talking about, okay, this is where people are coming from, and this is how the gospel's presented, and, the, and you don't have an effectual call, because that's a work of the Spirit of God doing these certain things. For example, the, the phrase I looked at Sunday was, was enlightening their minds with the knowledge of Christ. This is something that has to come from outside of us. And I'll talk about what synergists like yourself believe about man anthropologically. Now, by the time we're question 35, in the catechism, we've already dealt with the deadness of man and sin and, and, and things like that, obviously. Um, but this is, this is a part of what we do. We, we, we make sure that people accurately understand. And again, many of them have come from that, but that's a, that's a part of being truthful. In, in how you deal with, with these issues. And it would, it would help a lot if we, if we all you know, attempted to do that. Maybe they haven't turned into, they're tuned into Soteriology 101. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, if, you know, back when I was a Calvinist, I would think it was probably the latter. I hadn't really been introduced to the other mm-hmm. side, and therefore I adopted that. Uh, again, I hadn't been introduced to the other side. Really? Really, Leighton? Um, you were, you were raised on the Puritans, right? You were. Only thing you had read outside of Pilgrim's Progress was the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and uh, maybe a few articles by B.B. Warfield, right? <laughs> Sorry. That interpretation, because it was the one introduced to me. Uh, first and and so uh, that that's the and that's the reason that I adopted it. I didn't. I don't think I ever had the motivation of being lazy or trying to avoid evangelism when I was a Calvinist. I don't ever remember that being uh, you know a motivation. Uh, th- though it could be the motivation of some. I have no idea. We can't we can't read the minds of of Calvinists as to why they choose one particular interpretation over another. It's just been my experience in the time doing this that very few of the, especially the young internet type Calvinists. Um, have actually given time to really uh, examine the deep theological, robust scholars from the other side. Yeah, yeah. Those robust scholars, you'll notice that you know they <clears throat> they can uh, they have a real broad broad view of things. So there's there's all sorts of views of God you can come up with, you know, and you can you can play around with open theism and and the problem is Leighton can't come up with a firm foundation to stand on and tell us really about God's sovereign decree or does he really know the future or why does he know the future? And he's come up with all sorts of theories and that we've just demonstrated are so far out to lunch that it's 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 not even funny. Um but that's that sound scholarship that none of the rest of us have ever examined. Um it's like, yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, they have mostly kind of surrounded themselves in an echo chamber of other Calvinists telling them what the other side believes. Yeah, that, that never happens amongst the Soteriology 101 folks. And that's one of the reasons they treat us like we're doofuses sometimes is because they just assume that we're, we're as dumb as uh, the, the, the scholars and the leaders within their world, their community are, are telling them about us. 
And, and that's one of the reasons I started the program is to say, Hey, there's some really sharp guys like Dr. Turek and, and many, many others who do not hold to a, a more deterministic reading of the text. I don't really have. Yeah. Okay. Well, there, you know, wasn't much there. And in fact, it was more latent than it was, uh, Frank, but, but Dr. Turek, you really, if you're going to address this issue, brother, you've got a lot of reading you need to be doing. A lot of reading you need to be doing. Um, because your words just demonstrate a, uh, a fundamental lack of understanding of the of the basics of this issue, and so I would highly encourage you um, to to consider those things. Um, it would be it would be very 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 helpful. There wasn't enough there for a um, radio free Geneva or anything like that, but we, we just wanted to wanted to get to that. This morning, uh, I was directed to an article. Let me see if I can. Uh, yes, I was directed to an article on the Vatican Files website. Now, this is not a Roman Catholic website, okay? So you need to understand that. And um, Leonardo de Chirico wrote an article titled, Go to Thomas! Who will follow the Pope's invitation? Go to Thomas. Who will follow the Pope's invitation? This is very timely. Nothing could be more explicit. Go to Thomas. This warm invitation was issued by Pope Francis to participants of the International Thomistic Congress, September 21st to 24th. That was, you know, last week. Well, not last week. Last month. Not very long ago. Uh, These days... That was it's almost ancient history, isn't it? Uh, yeah, sadly. September twenty first, twenty fourth, during an audience at the Vatican, in his address, the Pope extolled the thought of Thomas Aquinas as a sure guide for Roman Catholic faith and a fruitful relationship with culture, citing Paul the Sixth in Lumen Ecclesiae, nineteen seventy four, John Paul II, Fides et Ratio, nineteen ninety eight who had magnified the importance of Thomas's thought for the contemporary Roman Church, Francis stood in the wake of recent popes and emphasizing superlative appreciation for the, rigor, the figure of Thomas while adding his own. This is nothing new. For centuries, Roman Catholicism has regarded Thomas Aquinas as its champion. His voice is often considered the highest, deepest, and most complete of Roman Catholic thought and belief. Canonized by John the Twenty-Second as early as 1323, he was proclaimed a doctor of the Church by Pius V, in 1567, to be the premier Roman Catholic theologian whose thinking would defeat the Protestant Reformation. Now, if you look at the date, 1567, ring any bells, any time frames, that's 50 years after the beginning of the Reformation. So the Counter-Reformation has begun in the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent, of course, codifies Thomas's perspectives as the bulwark against the Protestant Reformation. Uh, During the Council of Trent, the Summa Theologica was symbolically placed next to the Bible as a testament to its primary importance in formulating the Tridentine decrees and canons against justification by faith alone and other Protestant doctrines. In the 17th century, he was considered the defender of the Roman Catholic theological system by Robert Bellarmine, the greatest anti-Protestant controversialist who influenced many generations of Catholic apologists over the centuries, and I would say up to the present time. 
1879, Pope Leo XIII issued the encyclical Eterni Patris, in which he pointed to Thomas as the highest expression of philosophical and theological science. Notice the order there. Notice that at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, you've had a, a, a shift in the PhD program to philosophical theology rather than systematic theology. And in the center of that is Thomas Aquinas. Um, I'm sure Pope Leo XIII would be very pleased with Midwestern right now. Uh, the Second Vatical, Vatican, Vatical. <laughs> the Second Vatican Council stipulated that the formation of priests should have Thomas as the supreme guide in their studies. Quote, the students should learn to penetrate them, i.e. the mysteries of salvation, more deeply with the help of speculation, under the guidance of St. Thomas, and to perceive their interconnections. End quote. Speculative theology. Speculative. I've seen that somewhere recently. Oh, yeah, that's in the introduction to Dr. Zolzal's book. Speculative theology. Oh, the Second Vatican Council said in the form, form, formation of Roman Catholic priests. Hmm. Just fascinating. Of recent popes, this has already been mentioned, considering this, what could Pope Francis say but go to Thomas? Francis indicated not only the need to study Thomas, but also to contemplate the master before approaching his thought. Yeah, con- the master isn't Jesus there. The, the master is Thomas. Okay. Um, thus, to the cognitive and intellectual dimension, he added a mystical one. In this way, he caused Thomas, already a theologian imbued with wisdom and asceticism, to be seen as even more Roman Catholic. This mix best represents the interweaving of the intellectual and contemplative traditions prior to Roman Catholicism. Happened as we're walking past here to remind you once again of the definition of great tradition exegesis offered by Dr. Craig Carter, graduate of Roman Catholic institution for his PhD, which uses the exact same terminology and language and categories as we have by popes and councils of the Roman Catholic Church. Just point it out. Just a fact. Just mention it in passing. The International Congress had the exploration of the resources of Thomas thought in today's context as its theme. I could see them meeting at Midwestern. Thomism is not just a medieval stream of thought, but a system that is both solid and elastic at the same time. All seasons of Roman Catholicism have found it inspiring for the diverse challenges facing the Church of Rome, including the Reformation first, the Enlightenment project second, and now post-modernity. Oh yes, we hear much about post-modernity too. As a result of the Congress, we will continue to hear more about Thomas and Thomism, not only in historical theology and philosophy, but also in other fields of knowledge that were once far from previous interpretive traditions of Thomas. In recent years, we have witnessed a growing fascination with Thomas Aquinas and Thomism by evangelical theologians, especially coming from the North American context. They seem to be attracted to the great tradition he represents. This phenomenon should be studied because it signals the existence of internal movements within evangelical theological circles. 
Protestant theology of the 16th and 17th centuries had a critical view of Thomas. In a sense, Thomas could not be avoided, given his stature and importance for theology, but he was read with selective and theologically adult eyes. Rather important there. Then, for various reasons, there has been a certain neglect, not only of Thomas, but with pre-Reformation historical theology as a whole. Today, in the face of the pressures coming from secularization and the identity crisis felt in some evangelical quarters, Thomas is perceived as a bulwark of traditional theology that needs to be urgently recovered. That's the very language that we're hearing all the time, right? Recovery. It is often overlooked that Roman Catholicism has considered Thomas as its champion in its anti-Reformation stance and also in its subsequent anti-biblical developments, such as the 1950 Marian dogma of the bodily ascension of Mary. Rome considers Thomas as the quintessentially Roman Catholic theologian and thinker. There's no question about that. Absolutely no question about that. And of course, when you just point out that 95% of the books being recommended in the recovery of Thomas are written by Roman Catholics, that does seem to sort of fit together with the author's thinking. Go to Thomas is an invitation that even a growing number of practitioners of evangelical theology would take up. The point is not to uncritically study or absolutely avoid Thomas, but rather to provide the theological map with which one approaches him. It is necessary to develop an evangelical map of Thomas Aquinas. If Rome considers Thomas its chief architect, can evangelical theology approach him without understanding that Thomas stands behind everything Roman Catholicism believes and practices? And so one of the questions, um, you know, I, um, I posted that article. And then I posted the following tweet, quote, In light of this article, let me say it directly. If your Protestant theology needs Thomas to define its doctrine of God, you have no reason to be a Protestant. Ooh, that's pretty blunt. Yeah. But let's 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 think about what it said. I by the way, I am wearing my Reformed Biblicist t-shirt today, so that seems to fit really well. You haven't washed yours? Yet. Oh, okay. Why do you have to Oh, okay. Rich Rich evidently has to wash his before he wears it for some reason. It's not like we got it off a dead body or something. It's just yeah, for know where it's been. Okay, all right. Anyway, so I'm wearing, wearing my Reformed Biblicist t-shirt, and so I guess it fits. If your Protestant theology needs Thomas to define its doctrine of God. Now, did I say if your Protestant theology of God doesn't absolutely ignore the medieval period, then you don't you 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 have no reason to be Protestant? No. Um, again, we have this. We have so many straw men. I mean, just, it's smoky in the internet these days. The, 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 we need a, a big fan of truth uh, to just suck all this smoke out from all the straw men that are being burned. Um, we are not saying that you need to burn the Summa. Uh, we are not saying that you need to ignore Thomas Aquinas. Uh, we are not saying that, um, you know, Anyone who studies church history should know what the five ways are, should know, should know how, especially anybody who's particularly concerned about 
Christian apologetics today uh, has to recognize the, the influence that Aquinas has had, massive influence on, uh, on Norman Geisler and any type of classical apologetics approach. And if you listen to the dialogue between Greg Bonson and R.C. Sproul on apologetic methodology, you have to recognize the impact of Thomas on R.C. Sproul's categories of thought. So you can't ignore any of these things. And nobody's saying that you should. What we are saying is that when you take Thomas's teachings and Thomas's formulations and make them the endpoint of a process of development so that he becomes the pinnacle of the expression of theology proper. Now, he's not the pinnacle of the expression of anything else from their perspective. He's not the pinnacle of the expression of the view of Scripture. He's not the pinnacle of the expression of ecclesiology, sacramentology. And he's certainly not the pinnacle of the expression of soteriology. And so, so we are hearing people who want to chop Thomas's theology into pieces, something he never would have agreed with, and say, well, you know, you would agree with 88% of what Thomas Aquinas said. I have no idea how you come up with any of that stuff, but you can, you know, that other, you can put that other 12% aside. Mm, okay. Here's the problem. Here's, here's where we're, we're going to run into problems, and we've been talking about this for a long, long time. If you say that Thomas's specific formulations, and especially the emphases that he produces, that he enunciates, are definitional of orthodoxy. So that if you question Thomas's um, proclaiming of divine simplicity, a doctrine that the vast majority of my critics today, if they were in ministry 10 years ago, had never heard of and never preached. Admit it, you know it's true. If you take his making that absolutely central based upon, if you're honest, categories either of medieval thought or of Aristotelian categories and say, this is where we have to go if we're going to be true Trinitarians. And if you question any of this, you're a Neo-Sicinian you don't believe in these things. Uh, you you aren't confessional. Blah blah blah. Okay, that's that's what's going on, and we all know that's what's going on. Well, any of us that are involved in this, a lot of other people are like, I don't know what's going on, and and I get it, I understand, but it's happening, and it's impacting schools and programs and all sorts of things in the process. That's the issue. And if you could, if you make the argument, and it's a good argument, that your doctrine of God has to be foundational to all your other doctrines, 
if the Roman Catholics have the doctrine of God right, and the Protestants don't, then upon what basis are you seriously going to argue that we've got the gospel right and the Roman Catholics don't? Isn't that an honest question? And the Roman Catholics are going, mm-hmm, 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 yep, yep, yep. They're, they're loving this. They're just sitting there going, oh, we just, yo, can't wait. Can't wait till next Easter to, you know, uh, invite you all in. Um, if, if, you know, there have been people who have said the Catholics are right about the doctrine of God, but the Protestants are right about the gospel. And you're like, how does that work? How, how do you, how do you make that argument in a, in a meaningful fashion? And so <clears throat> I posted that because if your Protestant theology needs Thomas to define its doctrine of God, then it's not based upon Scripture as the sole and sufficient source. Right? So you read the first chapter of Westminster, you read the first chapter of London, you read any of the sections on Scripture for any of the great Protestant traditions, and what you're saying is, we don't really believe that. Because we actually believe that to have a true and sound doctrine of theology, theology proper, you need Thomas Aquinas. You've got to have his formulations. So evidently nobody before Thomas had the whole thing figured out. Um, but there, there you go. And so if you need Thomas for the, the foundation of your theology, you're, you're not going to, you're not, you don't have a Protestant foundation. So you can continue to be a Protestant if you want to. But if someone comes along and can press upon you properly, your inconsistency will become self-evident over time. That's what I meant. Got some interesting pushback on that. Uh, For example, The Beard, Mitchell Wigand, posted, so is there some benefit to be gained from Thomas Aquinas, some positive use? It's helpful to consider these words were well-known, and he goes on quotes from Stephen Shinock. Notice the Mott and Bailey stuff. So on the one hand, you say Aquinas is necessary. His formulations are uh, the definition of uh, orthodox theology proper. And then when you point out the problems with that and the fact that, you know, the, the current pope is saying, go to Thomas. And you don't want to be saying the same things as the current pope because it sort of casts a light on you you don't want, no matter how big your beard is. Um, so you say, well, well, isn't there some benefit? We're not talking about some benefit. There's benefit from, from reading every single theologian in the medieval period that impacted the state of theology at the time of Wycliffe and Huss and the Reformation. So there's, you can find great stuff in Bonaventura. Bernard of Clairvaux, you can find all sorts of great stuff. No one has ever said otherwise. 
Not once. But when it comes to what the foundation of our theology is, what we have said is, it doesn't matter if it's Thomas or if it's Calvin. They're not inspired. They're not theonoustos. They must be judged by a standard that is fundamentally different than them. And it's Rome that says you can't do that because you have the great tradition. And now we have Reformed Baptists talking about the great tradition. And I keep trying to say, if you all would put your spears and your 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 torches down long enough to listen to what I'm saying, you might you might gain something. Because I still think I have done more interaction with Roman Catholics on the, the issue of authority and theology than all of you combined. All of you. But you don't want to listen. You've, you've gotten, you've, you've bitten the apple, and it's like, oh, it tastes so good. This is wonderful. So it's not a matter of, well, isn't there something, that, you, know, you know, that type of thing? And so, Nathan Hunter, a student at the Master's Seminary, and I believe he works at Grace to You, if I recall correctly, who is a Baptist. And this is the funny thing. Let me, let me point something out to all of you Baptists. Believing in believer's baptism is not a part of the great tradition. Hello? Anybody home? Anybody home? Uh, rejecting the uh, development of ecclesiastical offices outside of elders and deacons is not a part of the great tradition. Hello, Lucy. So, if you're going to be a Baptist, then you need to recognize when you're walking into massive inconsistency. So Nathan Hunter says, if you deny simplicity and passability, inseparable operations, appropriations, and pure actuality, as it has been historically defined, quote, by good and necessary consequence, end quote, from Scripture, then you are an inconsistent Protestant. So, this is in direct response to my statement. In light of this article, let me say it directly, if your Protestant theology needs Thomas to define its doctrine of God, you have no reason to be Protestant. Now, is Nathan's response relevant to what I said? No, it's not. It does not respond to the reality of the centrality of Thomas to the definition of the doctrine of God and the issues that that raises in regards to scriptural sufficiency and the authority of the Church of Rome and the authority of tradition and magisteriums and everything else that is fundamental to Thomas's theology as a whole. But what it is, is it is the current counterattack that's coming from this perspective, and that is ad hominem assert that White's denying this, this, and this. Okay? So, if you deny simplicity, so in other words, notice how it's placed. As it has been historically defined, but then by what? Not by creeds and confessions, not by uh, theologians, but by good and necessary consequence from Scripture. Now, 
Anybody recognize that phrase? Uh, if you're a Reformed Baptist or a Presbyterian, you better. The reason the Presbyterian recognizes it is because it's from the Westminster Confession. But the Baptists should recognize it because it's not in the London Confession. Oh, it's one of those differences? Yep, and purposely so. Purposely so. Because it is one of the key phrases used by paedo-baptists to defend paedo-baptism against Baptist, biblicist argumentation for credo-baptism. Credo-baptism is biblicist. It really is. There's no question about that. And so I find it fascinating that a Baptist would be quoting the very phrase used by the paedo-baptists to explain, really to, as their defense, we, we credo-baptists come along and say, you know, um, every single example that we can provide you of baptism in the New Testament follows our pattern, not yours. Well, You see, there are good and necessary consequences if you reason this way. If you you don't reason that the new covenant should be defined by the new covenant scriptures, but by the old covenant scriptures, then by good and necessary consequence, we come up with the idea of infant baptism. But again, this is a Baptist. And Baptists don't stand in the Great tradition, however you define that. Ecclesiastically, sacrament in, in, in the sacraments, in soteriology, we we don't we go there there were major, major, major problems that developed from tradition. And so how do you define so, so when we talk about simplicity, how do you define simplicity? Well, if you're going to be a consistent Baptist and you can define simplicity the same way you define baptism, maybe you ought to do it out of the Bible. Might that be the way to do it? That's why biblicism is being turned into an insult. And why those of us who see what's going on go, ain't an insult. It's not an insult. I know you all are redefining it as you and your Bible under tree. That's not what we believe. It's not what we ever believed. And none of you 10 years ago believed that either. And you know it. That's what drives you nuts. Is we were all together 10 years ago. Well, we've learned. No, you've changed. You've changed on fundamental issues. My mode of dress or my cross or my ink is not the issue. Biblical sufficiency is, and you know it deep down inside. You know it deep down inside. Every one of you do. And so, how about we define simplicity as the doctrine that God's being is not made up of lesser parts. His being is simple. It couldn't be made of of lesser parts because God is the creator of all things. That's a biblical teaching. He is the only true God. That's a biblical teaching. He is eternally exists as God. That's a biblical teaching. We can very clearly establish these things without any reference whatsoever to Thomas Aquinas. 
or John Calvin, for that matter. These are biblical teachings. And if God is the eternal creator of all things, then he could not be made up of lesser parts because he has to be the maker of anything that would be a lesser part, right? So God's being has to be simple. It cannot be complex. It cannot be made up of, of parts where you can take out a part of God or something like that. has to be so, and you can demonstrate that biblically. And for some of you, that's frightening. Shouldn't be. For most people, it's like, chalk one up for simplicity. But if you go, oh, no, 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 that's not enough. Simplicity has to mean that God's omniscience is God's holiness. Well, there's there's a problem because you can't prove that biblically, can you? Of course not. I've looked at you guys as best attempts. You don't even try. You know you can't do it. You've got to do the natural theology excuse for going to philosophical categories and creation of external authorities that no prophet, no apostle, nobody who wrote a word of scripture ever dreamed of or communicated. You have to. So, Redefine, if you will. I believe in, in the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, the biblical doctrine of monotheism, the biblical doctrine of God's simplicity. If you want to go beyond the biblical and pretend that you're very wise in doing so, you all go for it. I'm not going with you. And I've got some news for you. There are so many people contacting me. Pastors, students in schools, that are going, please don't stop. Please don't stop. Keep responding to this stuff. And I'm not going to give up, because this is where we've been. My goodness, the first debate I did was in defense of Sola Scriptura. That was in August of 1990. I'm an old dog. I don't, ain't, ain't learning new tricks, especially when I have absolutely, positively, not one single meaningful reason to do so. Not one single meaningful reason to do so. So, uh, I do not deny simplicity. I do not deny impassibility. But even then, these things have to be defined and discussed. Did you see what happened when a quote from R.C. Sproul was posted? Oh, he, he, he must change that later because look what he says over here. As if, because R.C.'s gone, he's now our Pope? He's now our Thomas? Sad. I I wasn't R.C.'s buddy, but I, I know that we could have had a meaningful conversation about stuff like this without the cancellation stuff going on. Uh, I, I know that could have happened. But what do you mean by impassibility? When the great division took place amongst Reformed Baptists back between 2010 and 2014 over this issue, back then I read papers from the two sides and I, I didn't feel like you could, you could slide a, a business envelope between the two. But they still end up splitting over it. Whatever you say about impassibility, If you turn God into a being that is not holy love and holy wrath 
and wholly focused upon his own glory and turn him into the Greek unchanging, unmoved mover, you have left the scriptures. Is God controlled by emotion? Of course not. Does God have human emotions to where they just, man, sometimes you don't even know why. And all of a sudden, your mood changes. God is not controlled by moods. But when God says that he has wrath against sin, it's wrath. And when God says he loves his people, he loves. And they are pure, and they are real, and if you are so wedded to Thomas that you end up with a God that is a stone monument. You've missed the Bible. You've missed the prophets. You've missed the apostles. They have no concept of such a God. So you better have... I can't think of a doctrine where where you need to have more of a fundamentally balanced biblical understanding you need to be a biblicist when you define your doctrine of God. You must. You absolutely, positively must. Uh, inseparable operations. Again, if you mean by that that the only way you can tell the difference between Father, Son, and Spirit is by their internal operations, nobody... It's real simple. I'll, you guys put somebody up. Let's debate that. Let's debate that the only way that you could never find a way in the pages of the New Testament where the apostles and prophets found therein distinguished between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit by what they did, by their relationship to one another. I sit here and say, Jesus was not praying to himself. And you do not have to engage in these handstands, turning Jesus into a schizophrenic person where you're having to apply this out there. and We're going to have to do mind of God exegesis and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I can let the New Testament be the New Testament. I'm going to tell you something. In a formal debate, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. Because the person sitting out there listening is going to be going, well, um, yeah, you know, it uh, seems to be right there. Yeah, wow, hmm, fascinating. Uh, wonder why. Wonder why anybody would be. Uh, um, you know, confused about that. <laughs> Sorry, distracted by something there, by someone who's clearly not listening to the program right now. Uh, if if you want to say, if you want to do what I've done for a long, long time. Go to John 5, because that seems to be the key text, and talk about the absolute harmony of the Father and the Son. Then do it. But I... I just wish you all would get out of your ivory halls and do this in some place other than a PhD colloquium classroom. Because you see, when I go to John chapter 5, I do it in mosques. If you would do it, a lot of this silliness would evaporate. 
it would just evaporate. It really would. Sorry. It, it just... I just think of the number of times where I have engaged Muslims in conversations based on John chapter 5. Because they had brought it up. They brought up the son saying, I, I do nothing of myself. And I have to go to John chapter 5, and I have to defend the deity of Christ. And the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit and the accomplishment of the one decree of God. And now I've got students denying inseparable operations. Okay. Um, Appropriations and pure actuality. Well, now, now... Nathan? Here. Show me. Show me. Can, 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 can you even start? Can you even start? What, what do you even mean by it? We are so far down the road from the apostles now. What's going on here? Can we not all see it? This is a really new thing. It wasn't really a new thing in the sense that there's always been the, the 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 people fascinated by scholasticism. They've never cared what we do in apologetics because they don't do apologetics. They aren't doing it. They have no interest in it. You know that that's not going to get them published anywhere. So in fact, it's it could be. In fact, I'm proof it's dangerous. You're 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 not gonna you're not gonna get advancement like you want to get advancement if you're going to do that type of thing. Um, so anyway, I, I asked some, some direct questions, uh, about that. And there was another, uh, statement, um, let me see this. It it was, it was about, uh, Aquinas. Yeah, here we go. Nathan Hunter also said, of course, we do not quote, need Aquinas, end quote, but he is one of the best to articulate some of these biblical doctrines. Really? I've never seen a single biblical doctrine that Thomas Aquinas was the best one to articulate. Not one. And I have challenged you. Give me one. Give me an example. To neglect his work is to forfeit insight into the truth of, truths of God that he explicates, he, evidently Thomas, from Scripture. And I just, I, I'm like, okay, my, my, my response to that was, Nathan, care to point me to any place where Aquinas explicates from Scripture with greater clarity and consistency than, say, Calvin or Hodge or Warfield, etc.? I'd like to see this. I really would. I look forward to your many examples. Let me click on this. And crickets. No response. He's responded to other people since then. So he has at least had the opportunity of seeing it. I'm not going to say he's seen it, because the fact of the matter is, Twitter's weird, and I'm hoping Elon Musk might have a... I'm hoping his non-woke code writers will come up with something that might work better than all the woke people that have been employed by Twitter for all this time. Uh, So maybe... So I can't... I don't know if Nathan saw this, but so far, that was posted many hours ago. At 8.52 a.m. this morning. So, nine, uh, almost over six hours ago. And there's been no response. 
And I don't think there's going to be a response because I don't think there's any examples of it. I really don't. And if you really do believe that Thomas explicates from Scripture, that Thomas articulates, that he is the best to articulate some of these biblical doctrines, (coughs) where are you going to end up? If he was the best to articulate simplicity, why wasn't he the best to articulate the Mass? Can you tell me that? How many of you who are running around with Thomas is my homeboy t-shirts have read Thomas on the Mass? How many of you are even aware of the fact that it was his philosophy that provided the very philosophical foundation for the entire concept of transubstantiation? as understood by the Roman Catholic Church, to the present day. If his great philosophical insights into the doctrine of God were so important that we have to have them today to even remain Trinitarian, these last 10 years have been so bad, I guess, but if that's the case, then on what consistent basis do you say that his philosophical insights into the concepts of accidents and presence and and substance that becomes a very foundation for the understanding of transubstantiation in the Mass. We're in error. If you want to test him by the scriptures on that subject, why can't you do it over here? And why am I wrong to test him over here? There is no consistency here. That's why you all just simply hum as you walk past these objections. That's why you're doing just the ad hominem cancellation stuff, blah, 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 biblicist, blah, 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 all the straw men, because there are no answers. That's the issue. That's the issue. I was going to get to continuing my response, but I guess we'll have to do that hopefully on Thursday. Um in regards to the Baptist dogmatics stuff, because at least they're trying. And, and again, it's important because here's someone trying to go, well, we need to, we need to do an exegesis where we, we bring in God's mind. And so we need to see, well, how does, how does that, exactly does that work? I mean, if, it's, if, if God's mind isn't found by the historical grammatical interpretation of the words of Scripture, then... How does this work? And we're about to get to that point. And I thought we might get there. But then again, didn't I say something as I walked in that said, I'll never get through all this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I knew. (laughs) I knew that that was coming. Uh, Anyways. uh, Thank you. I won't mention who sent this to me, but um, posted today by one of our Reformed brethren who is just so, always so completely um, loving and gracious and kind and can just always bending over backwards to, you know. Richard Wakefield says, I am once again asking everyone to just avoid James White. Please. His arguments begin with well-poisoning and end with question-begging. I do not say this to be uncharitable. I think it's germane to his rhetoric. Folks, examine what I just said and apply it to what Richard Wakefield just wrote. 
and you'll see the impact of tradition upon a man's thinking. Um, begin with well poisoning. What's that? Give an example. Uh, you point out that Thomas was a Roman Catholic. <laughs> okay. If that's, a, if that's well poisoning, um, okay. And end with question begging. This kind of vague, throw it out there, see what sticks kind of stuff. This is what the Thomas are all about. That's what the Thomas are all about. And what's the end result? Well, we're seeing it. We are seeing it. I don't follow Richard Wakefield, uh, but there are people out there that are kind enough to send me stuff. And um, that was just sent to me, and that's why I was able to uh, look at that. I had other stuff I wanted to... I was going to briefly play a segment. Uh, our feeds are just so filled with so many, so much as I might try to save this and maybe come back to it um, on the uh, transgender insanity and, and what people are doing, but it really wouldn't fit at this point anyways. So we'll wrap things up here and I'll try to keep that one posted for, uh, for the next program and we'll, uh, we'll press on from there. So, Thanks for watching the program today, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Thursday. God bless.